We are grateful to have our friends at Sleep Number sponsoring the Thrive Global podcast. The Sleep Number bed adjusts on each side, so it is perfect for both you and your partner. Experience the Sleep Number bed exclusively at one of their 550 stores nationwide. Check them out at sleepnumber.com slash thrive. Hello and welcome to the Thrive Global podcast on iHeartRadio. My guest today is a true Hollywood powerhouse. Brian Grazer is an Academy and Emmy Award-winning producer and a New York Times best-selling author. His films and television shows have been nominated for a total of 43 Oscars and 187 Emmys. His credits include A Beautiful Mind, Apollo 13, Splash, Friday Night Lights, Arrested Development, 24, Empire, and 8 Mile, to name a few. He's currently working on the second season of Genius, the anthology series he's producing for National Geographic, which will focus on the life of Pablo Picasso. And he's also working on a new book, Eye Contact, The Power of One-on-One. And we're here in his beautiful home in Los Angeles. And the last time I was here was for Brian's wedding to Veronica, uh, which was a kind of amazing event. It was a little bit like a mosaic of all the curiosity conversations you have ever had. It's and, funny, that's how you, you perceive know, it, that's Entertainers, true. business people, uh, rappers, your whole world um, <laughs> unfolding in front of us. So, Brian, welcome to the Thrive Global Podcast. And I want to start with a new book, Eye Contact, The Power of One-on-One. Why Eye Contact? What does it do for us? Well, okay, first of all, the this this book on eye contact is is birthed out of my curiosity conversations and the book that synthesized those curiosity conversations called a curious mind the secret to a bigger life a number one new york times bestseller for a long time <laughs> thank you um because i i i i sort of learned retrospectively only 2 years ago that these conversations wouldn't have worked. They wouldn't have had power or meaning or even success if eye contact wasn't the bridge to these conversations. Without eye contact, you really can't create connectivity or intimacy or compassion. I mean, they're, they're sort of prohibited almost. It's, it's a wall. And then, of course, our modern world, our I generation, I generation, <laughs> um, kids are, you know, predominantly just they're on they're on screens, mostly mobile phones, of course. And it's not bad. It's just what it is. It just and it prevents real connectivity. And once again, you know, you are tapping in something powerful in the zeitgeist because we have all the new data about how our growing addiction to our mobile phones Mm-hmm. And the fact that people are having dinner with each other and looking at their phones, they're walking down the street and looking yes. at their phones and preventing eye contact with each other, that is having a huge impact on our mental health. As you know, depression and anxiety are skyrocketing and a huge exactly. impact on our capacity to develop empathy. So what prompted you to actually address this issue at this particular point? Well, it was an accident that happened about two and a half years ago. We had just hired a new, you know, we have a few, a little bit of a staff here. We have a couple of house um, managers and people. And uh, without going into great detail, there was one that was new, um, let's just 
call her name Catherine. <laughs> it isn't Catherine, but I'll say Catherine. And I hadn't really spent any time with her. Maybe, and she'd been working for us for about two months. And Veronica said something like, you know, how you doing with Catherine? And I said, great. I think she's great. Then she asked Catherine. Catherine said, well, I love Brian, but she'd only spent less than a minute with me, um, in probably in total. And, and she said, I love Brian because every time he has contact with me, he looks me directly in the eyes and it makes me feel like a human being. Mm. And just the entire word of human being made me think, wow, that's pretty powerful. And then that ignited me retrofitting my 30 years of these conversations. And I thought, of course, that's why my conversation with Jonas Salk was so amazing or, you know, or with uh, Bill Gates or with Larry Page or some or Isaac Asimov or whoever they might be. They were they were great because we were connecting because we were looking into each other's eyes and I like to say, and, and, you know, a great date happened, you know, like, because I always wanted these conversations to feel kind of like biochemically, they were like the best date you've ever had <laughs> in your life. And, and when you're really looking at somebody, even like as we're doing right now, there's, there's something going on, you know, we're looking at each other's faces and we're looking at our eyes and are they pupils dilating and are just the entire physiognomy of us. It's like, it gives us so much information for one another. So at the time when you were fully present in these yes. conversations, you were not really aware of being fully present. You kind of almost thought that uh, retrospectively. Yeah, no, that's a very good nuance. It's like, no, I didn't think, wow, I'm... Fully present. Yeah, I'm not thinking of my next meeting or of what happened before. Yeah, and I wasn't thinking about the tool of eye contact itself. I just knew that I really enjoyed these meetings and I was willing to do anything to take time to do these curiosity conversations every two weeks for 30 years. And I even had a successful movie that happened for me. Uh, I produced Parented. And I thought, wow, this is great, but how good does it feel? I thought, it felt pretty good to have the success of parenthood, but I thought the curiosity conversations felt better. <laughs> I made, I created a comparison or it just happened. And I thought the curiosity conversations really feel better to me than even successful movies. So how did last year uh, feel for you in terms of uh, conversations, eye contact moments, if you go over 2017? Um, there are, I mean, the most recent that I was just quickly alluding to was, was a rapper named Gucci Mane and Gucci Mane, um, he was just got out of prison. What he, had he done? Gucci Mane writes and produces. No, what had he done to get him oh, in prison? Uh, well, I don't want to, uh, he did something bad. <laughs> well, I mean, he was involved, he was involved w w with a mur in a murder. Right. Uh, but he grew up very, 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 very poor and then transported, uh, to, um, Atlanta where he grew up in the nineties, kind of alone on the street. And, uh, 
you know, understood music, understood survival, uh, sold drugs a little bit. Like, and but he did explain that like every kid was selling drugs on the street to survive in Atlanta at that time. He was one of those kids. No apology. He's not an apology guy. He's um, pretty straightforward, and he's extremely. He's like authentic, as you know. I produced Eight Mile. Eminem was really uh, very authentic, a unique voice, and a poet. Gucci Mane is a different thing. He created this um, a music movement that is that has taken over all of hip hop called trap, trap music, which is mumble. They sort of mumble. It's a mumble sound that Future does and Migos. And there's a whole bunch of rappers that sort of dominate the you know, the rap world right now, this whole culture um, that every kid in America will know Gucci Mane. He has a burgundy Rolls Royce convertible. He's got Gucci clothes. He's extremely prolific. And when he got out of prison, I think he, in a two weeks, he put out 20 songs. And he's a focused guy that's a clear thinker, but also very, you know, like authentic. He's a, He's from the street. Trap is that sound emerging out of crack houses, crack houses, gangster houses, and gangsters performing this trap music. And he was the progenitor of this movement. And so now you're going from Picasso to Gucci Mane. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I'm going from exactly Einstein to Picasso to Gucci. Well, they're not all on the same. Uh, yeah, they're not all on the same television show. But, no, I get yeah, it. But yeah, they're all... Yeah. But they're all... They're all people who fascinate you. And that's what is so interesting. I would love a list from you of things you're not interested in. <laughs> is there such well, a list? Because <laughs> you're sort of interested in everything. And there must be some things that you're not interested in. Have you thought of that? I haven't thought of it. But there was a time I thought of anything that was sort of... That was, that was like absent of humanity or was something I wasn't interested in. So... Oddly, I boxed up. I thought somehow I thought architecture was. I had this preconception. That's the thing about these curiosity conversations. Every time my shrink told me this. Every time you think you know what something is, you're wrong. She says, "I'm going to tell you right now. You're about a hundred percent wrong on every time you have a preconception." I'm going to hate this party. Someone's going to be there that's going to freak me out or make me nervous. I go there. First of all, the person's never there. <laughs> um, and, and also just all these sort of preconceptions, they're, they're shattered. So I thought to myself in relationship to architecture, I thought I've met all these different people from Andy Warhol to Roy Lichtenstein to, as I said, to Jonas Salk. President Reagan, I mean, endless amount of people. I just didn't want to meet anyone in architecture. <laughs> and I had someone working for me that was helping me curate these meetings. And I keep avoiding architecture because I said, oh, it's just this antiseptic manipulation of, of space. And it doesn't intrigue me. So he brings up, he brings up Rem Coolhouse again. Rem Coolhouse happens to yes. be in New York at this moment in time. And I go, okay, I'll meet Rem Coolhouse. And so weirdly, it was around the time where they have the UN and everything's going on. I had to run 20 blocks <laughs> to be on time for someone I thought I'd want to meet. And he says the most crazy thing to me. The first thing that comes out of his mouth is he says, I look at architecture as a living organism. Literally, 
It was just the exact opposite of what I've ever, ever expected. Architecture as a living organism. And I said, well, can you explain that to me? And then he had all these sort of bisociative parts to architecture itself as a structure and a map to those structure and we as human beings. And I thought, well, that was really shocking and cool. And I realized again, I just, that's what I love about these curiosity conversations. And that's what I love about life so much. You just don't know. And they shatter preconceptions. Yeah, they shatter preconceptions. Um, They offer, each individual doesn't just offer to you an expertise on the subject that they're working on, whether it's technology or medicine or science. They offer perspective that you hadn't contemplated. So you had a um, obviously a great architect for this house, you and Veronica. Yes. So, well, we didn't have a great one like Rum Coolhouse. We had someone named Mark Rios, who was a famous landscape architect, and he only that's done very a interesting because houses. the house feels as though you are in in the middle of nature. Sort of nature yes. is part of the house, part of the living organism of the house. Yes. Incidentally, we have to let everybody know that I'm kind of responsible for this house because I'm. When you are getting divorced, yes, um, we run into each other with another friend, Will Obey. Yes. And you said, I don't know if I should keep my current house or move. And I said, definitely move. Yeah, you were so certain. <laughs> <laughs> because this house has the ectoplasmic aura of an unsuccessful relationship. And you need to move on and start from scratch, a new beginning without that ectoplasmic aura. And <laughs> and Willow and I were so taken by it. It was such a convincing argument. First of all, because we didn't know what ectoplasmic aura was. <laughs> and then it was just your certainty of like getting the, it, energetically it was wrong for you. <laughs> and I reluctantly, I mean, I sold my house that right, right away when you said that. <laughs> and it was like a dream house. It was a house that was built for Gregory Peck in the 40s. But it did feel bad to me. And you perceived that and you brought up this ectoplasmic <laughs> thing. I thought, this is convincing. This is a validating reason. I sold it. Then, by the way, you don't know this. I sold it. Then I spent a couple of months regretting it. Then I offered to buy it back to ben, from Ben Affleck. And he said, double. I actually said, let me look at the house and I'll pay you double if I love it. I go up there, and you're right. It felt terrible to me. And I was able to walk down the driveway. I'm finished with this house. Wow. It was complete, absolute complete uh, certainty. And then I found this lot, and I built this house that actually is prescriptive to the ectoplasmic aura that you were referring to me having. So I said, I want a house where you can see through it, where there's energy from every direction, energy from right behind you, uh, Ariana, energy off the the golf course, wherever you're looking at the mountains, there's constant energy. And at that time, uh, there, uh, there wasn't a Veronica. And I thought, I give up on relationships. I just give up. I'm going to build this house the way Ariana imagined it. <laughs> and I'm going to live here alone with housekeepers and managers and I can count on them because I'm paying them a salary and they'll be here for me. And this house will, the way it's built, will compensate for what potentially my loneliness could be. 
And it it does do that. And then at the same time, I was quite fortunate that I ran into, had this chance meeting with Veronica, who are now married. And Veronica, we should say, is actually here. And um, she's an absolute presence. She's an amazing woman. <laughs> and uh, I feel, you know, you coming together um, was really the culmination of uh, so much of your life. And we'll talk about that a little bit later. And she's also, for me, a real teacher uh, in so many ways. Like um, when she did the, you, uh, both you and Veronica did the Thrive Questionnaire. Yeah. And her answers were amazing. You know, her, we asked you about your relationship to your phone, for example. Yes. And, and I feel she's kind of a little bit ahead of you in all these things. <laughs> she is. <laughs> she is. She's, uh, it's great to have That's a wife, funny. a lover, an amazing woman who is also a teacher. Yes, definitely. And uh, so let's talk about some of the things that um, Veronica is teaching you about your phone. Uh, and your relationship with your phone. And for example, does your phone sleep with you, Brian Grazer? <laughs> I know I have to change this. It is right next to my bed. It shouldn't be next to my bed. I, I know the Ariana rules. <laughs> um, and maybe tonight, I think tonight I'm going to change it. I'm Try going it. to. I think it's going to be amazing. Because I wake up a couple times in the night because, I, you know, I have to go to the bathroom, I have to pee. And then I look at my phone, I catch up on a few things. I mean, I catch up. I, I'm intrigued with what's going on. Of course. You're um, curious. I'm curious. But <laughs> you know what? I, I shouldn't have it right, like less than a foot from my head. Only because you're such a creative person and the source of creativity is not in our phone. So, <laughs> you know, your it's phone not. is the repository of every project, every problem, everything the world wants of you. Mm -hmm. uh, but I find that when we sleep completely disconnected from our phones and our projects, we tap into a deeper source of creativity and wisdom. Mm. And allowing that to happen means that you can wake up fully recharged and ready to be intensely curious about everything in your phone. Yes, you're so right. So try it. Okay, I'm going to try it. And then let me know. I mean, I've liberated myself from so many other things, I've so many of the shoulds in life. I don't really – I mean, I've disconnected from the shoulds. Like, you should go to this party. You should go to this event. Oh, you went to the Oscars last year. You should go again. Um, I, I pretty much – try to stay pure on those things, I'd say to myself, do I am, I always am transporting myself. I immediately transport myself to a thing, to the event, to the book party, to, I always imagine it. Like, I always imagine like, what will I feel like doing? I'm asked to like lock in a date to give a speech two weeks from now in Salt Lake City. I love the person I'd be doing it with, but I realized, I'm not going to want to get on a plane and go to Salt Lake City, no matter. I just don't want to. I do can't that. do it. It's too. You crowd yourself up. So I, um, I try to do things that I imagine that f will feel good to me and feel honest, because those are the things that work the best into mm -hmm. my life. And now you know enough about yourself that you can project yes. yourself forward. I can. And see how that feels and make a decision. Yes. Okay, we're now going to take a quick break to share a sleep tip brought to you by our sponsor, Sleep Number, because a good sleep routine is the foundation for thriving. 
Today's slip tip is to exercise regularly. Even when you have a jam-packed day, try taking a longer route to your subway stop or take the stairs instead of the elevator or park at the outer edge of the parking lot. Or if you can, set up a walking meeting at work. The key is making exercise a habit. Rather than trying to add an occasional long workout to our day, which demands a big time commitment, try exercising just 20 or 30 minutes at least five days a week. Exercise is so beneficial to sleep and overall health that we should attempt to fit it in whenever our lives allow. And remember, a little goes a long way. This sleep tip was brought to you by Sleep Number, the bed that adjusts to you. Discover the future of sleep at sleepnumber.com slash drive. I always have these little litmus tests, even very early on, it had to be at least 15 years ago. Um, I was at a party with with people that I wanted to be with, but there was also a, the, you know, the epicenter of the party were around some of my, that involved some of my very smart also eccentric and judgmental friends. Like, I remember it pretty vividly. Graydon Carter was there. David Geffen was there. Barry Diller. I mean, the only thing, you weren't there. I wish you were there. You would have. <laughs> um, but anyway, so they were there and they said, what are you working on? And, you know, you have to shoot out an answer. So I had, was working on three movies. And I said, American Gangster, I said two right away. American Gangster, I forget the other one. Then there was a third that I couldn't say. And I thought about this. I thought, if I can't say it at a party, I shouldn't be doing it. Uh, it but, it, I, you know, I was sort of in the middle of it. So, so now what I do is every time I have a project, a movie or television show, I think to myself, can I say this in a party? If I saw those people and you're in that group as well, could I say genius? Yes, I could say I'm working on the genius series. But could I say I'm making fun with Dick and Jane with Jim Carrey? <laughs> no, I couldn't say it. So That's great. So you're basically extremely analytical. You're always like observing yourself. I'm always true. I'm always. And that's what has led to the Curiosity Project, to the Eye Contact Project, this constant observation of yourself. Yes. And... As we're at this amazing moment now, an inflection point about our relationship with technology and the ways it kind of prevents us mm -hmm. from being fully present in our lives. Correct. Um, are you seeing the eye contact book as a way to help people understand what they're missing yes. by being always kind of glued to the screens? It's, uh, you know, I studied economics yeah. in college and the only thing I remember <laughs> is the concept of the opportunity cost. That every time you are doing something, you are foregoing doing something else. There is yes. an opportunity cost to us being yes. glued to our screens. Yes. So how can, how can we start introducing more conscious eye contact in our lives? Well, I always create um, a device that I can imagine. When I started my career, I had this mentor. Her name was Deanne Barkley. She was a woman and the most powerful woman in television. This was literally uh, in 1970, mid late 70s. And I thought I was really smart. I had, like my grandmother, she always said, you have a gift for gab. And I, I realized that maybe I do possibly. But I thought I was really smart and I was learning a lot from being at Warner Brothers. And 
Then I got fired from Warner Brothers because I wasn't so smart. And then I, I had this mentor named Deanne and she would introduce me to really powerful people. And if I had an hour meeting with one of them, the first half hour was amazing. The second half hour was a wipeout. And I eventually said, why is this not working? She goes, because you're kind of a, an exaggerator. I go, what do you mean? She goes, they think you're kind of a liar is what they're saying. I said, oh, yeah, yeah. And then I thought to myself, I think I am kind of a liar. <laughs> I mean, I really thought about it because she was pretty, she was sensitive, smart, and judicious. And I thought about it and I thought, I exaggerate everything. If I pitch a movie to somebody, an exec, a Fox executive, for example, 20th Century Fox executive in the parking lot, a low, low executive, people are going, what are you doing? I'm saying I'm shooting the movie. <laughs> All they did, I just told like the 10th tier down executive. And I realized I'm doing that all the way through life on everything. So I was building my life on a bunch of exaggerations. So I thought to myself, I'm going to look at every little transaction, every conversation as a transaction. I'm going to imagine a light switch with the on-off button. And every time I'm asked something that requires an answer, like, what are you doing? Are you shooting? Are you not? What are you making? How much are you making? I put the lights, I see the light switch and I flick it off. So I like devices that make me, or props sometimes, like, mm -hmm. you know, a prop that makes you um, clean up your act. So they switch off meant don't exaggerate. Don't exaggerate. I literally, and I applied it, like the very first movie I produced called Night Shift, I was three days from shooting and someone said, you're making Light Shift. I said, not yet. I literally, you know, I now say when people go, aren't you just, aren't you making the spy that dumped me? I just finished a movie called spy that dumped me. I can now go when the last day happens and they say it's a wrap. I go, I just made the spy that dumped uh -huh. me. So I do the complete opposite. And by the way, it works pretty well because people really, they, when they, you say something, they, they hear the accuracy of it. Especially in a town like in a town with Hollywood. such hyperbolistic <laughs> bullshit. Hyperbolism in, everybody, in everybody's DNA. So, so with this book, that's what I am trying to do. I tell a lot of stories that involve eye contact that I think are engaging, entertaining, and unique, but they all lead you to the place you just said. Like, let's be more present. Let's put the phone down. Let's move the phone away. Let's turn the phone off. Um, that you, that you're losing your opportunity cause, you know, I want to tell my kids, it's hard to tell kids, but like you get these special moments when we were, coincidentally, you were in India when we were in India, you don't want to be on your phone when you, when you're in uh, Varanasi, you're there for 18 hours. When you're at the Taj Mahal for one, we were there with 40 minutes. Don't start fooling around with your phone, connect to the Taj Mahal. And, and even, you know, we spend so much time recording these experiences, you know, um, photographing, taking videos instead endless. of actually being there. Be, yes. And I wonder, actually, I'd love us to do a study on how many people ever go back and watch these videos. <laughs> you know, like it's you a go to a concert yeah. and instead of watching or being present and listening, you are like seeing it through your screen. And you're missing the moment. And then do you really go back <laughs> And um, no. 
watch Adele? <laughs> <laughs> no, you d- really don't. Really and I see, don't. You see people that are so obsessed with filming and doing stuff. And now, you know, increasingly. And they miss the are, moment. And there are more and more artists who are asking people to put their phones down. So uh, that's why I was showing cool. you the Thrive app that we developed, which yeah. helps you put your phone in Thrive mode. So let's say you are having dinner with Veronica. You don't want to be distracted. You put your phone in Thrive mode. And then if I text you, I'll get a text back that says Brian is in Thrive mode until such and such a time. Well, so I love brilliant. the fact that it's bidirectional that. because it means that um, we begin to change the culture. Yes. We go from people bragging that they are always on, or Brian is amazing, he texts you right back, to Brian is important enough, he has a sense of priorities, of what matters in his life, that he can take a break from his phone. Mm-hmm. And I think we all need that, and we need to kind of reinforce it and help each other yeah. uh, change um these um the ways that we manage our phone yeah i think that that's brilliant i didn't know exactly what it does the full cycle of yes. the full story of, of thrive i think that's brilliant uh, because it's not saying to somebody you're not important to me or i'm not doing this fast enough it's just saying i'm concentrating i'm being present exactly i'm being present I'm with my wife right with now with the precious yes. moments that we have and you can have a, a a small list of people who can always reach you yeah. Like your children or yes. your wife if you're not together. But the important thing is to stop all the noise yes. from uh, being perpetual and constant. Yeah. So let's switch to another topic that uh, you may actually do something more about. And that's the concept of faith. Faith, okay. So in your Thrive Questionnaire that you took with Veronica, she said that her secret life hack was remembering that God has a plan for her. And I love that because I really believe that. I, I say that God has a blueprint for my life. I don't know what it is, but I totally believe that God has more imagination than I have. So I'm kind of trying to be alert to the blueprint. So what role does faith play in your life? And how does it work with Veronica and you when it comes to faithing? <laughs> faithing, good, good, good. Well... Veronica is, and it sounds like you are, you're directed um, by faith or God, and that uh, I would say that I, well, I believe in God, and I'm learning this, but I'm learning it at my pace, because I think that's the best way for Brian to learn things, is to not have any sort of artificiality to any kind of a learning experience. Um, So I'm kind of, uh, so I'm learning that. I think I put karma up. for me. Karma is at the top of that food chain, uh, and not to be comparative to God. It's just that I would probably follow the laws, my laws of karma, and that's probably just directed through the golden rule. I feel very much like if I put out the extra effort to say hello to somebody, acknowledge somebody as I leave, goodbye, it was great seeing you, you know, kind of manners, attentiveness, um, giving people a break, not judging people for punctuation and grammar and syntax, you know, judging people if I'm going to for, um, for you know, like intentionality. Because we are, we can be perfectionistic ourselves. We don't want to, we, I don't want to box people up in my perfectionistic or just my way. 
So I like to believe that most people, really, really most people are good and their intentionality towards things are good. And I want to give people a break because I actually have faith that it's going to come back to me. I love that. So karma is the law of cause and effect. Yeah. And that's really what you are saying, that what you sow, you shall reap. Yes. And if you are treating people with respect and humanity, it will come back to you. Yes. I think it's worked really well in my career and in my life. Um, you know, and that, I, you know, I always say that uh, I'm, <laughs> I like to be kind of uncensored. I think I'm a good hearted person, but I do make a lot of mistakes. I'm pretty fallible, but my heart is always in the right place. And I think I've gotten a lot of tips on the jump ball in life. You know, when that ball's in the air in the basketball court, you someone gets the tip on the ball. I think I get a lot of tips because I think people mostly root for me. I don't think I have a lot of people that root against, against me. You. Yeah. I love the fact that you're that gratitude. Yeah. Uh, is such a big part of your life. I mean, you were telling me that you don't take anything for granted. I take nothing. So for, tell yeah. us more about that. Well, first of all, you know, in this this last year, you know, I think we've both seen many people die that we didn't think were going to die or they died much earlier. Or we even have a friend that was a very, you know, powerful, wealthy person in entertainment that is now hit very seriously by Alzheimer's. And we, I think I've watched those people... Uh, you know, accumulate power and money and been and sometimes a little more covetous of it than than I am learning to, to, you know, to not be. You know, I, I, I don't think I've ever been truly covetous of money. I'm aware of it. But I think when you put too much in, in building, you know, in building your life, professional life, that can happen. But but you don't know when it's all going to end. You don't know when your day or your moment is going to wrap up and or or you're just going to get sick or something's going to happen. And I don't want to be it. I don't want that to happen to me ever while I'm just trying to get another movie made or make another X amount of dollars or do that just would be very sad. <laughs> and I watch people make this mistake and I don't want to be one of them that makes that mistake. I'm going to try to just be aware of that. So I get up every morning. I'm really grateful to my health, knock on wood, thank God, because health animates everything. It animates your physicality. It animates your mind because that's all I'll say. No, I love it. And I think it's such a great reminder. And and I just have realized that we can never be reminded enough times of the fundamental principles of life. I mean, yes. we need to be reminded of that every day. Mm -hmm. So I like to start my day with three things I'm grateful for. Okay, and uh, they can be really tiny things. Oh, they don't I have to be big three things. New th three things. new things. Three new things. Not always the same, yeah. Yeah, things from the day oh. before, like definitely tomorrow morning when I wake up, I will make one of the three things I'm grateful for this conversation. And um, <laughs> it could be my cafe latte, it could be a chance encounter, you know, it doesn't have to be huge things. But just starting the day with what I'm grateful for helps me focus on 
on the good things rather than the bad things. And life is a mixture, always, right? Yeah. There are problems and that you can focus on. Yeah. And then that affects how you approach the day. I think that's brilliant. I'm going to do that too. I'm going to move my phone and I'm going to do what you just said. <laughs> because I am grateful, but that's a new way to look at it. Like what, and I always have, I do have I usually, I always pretty much have three things every day like you and they're not gigantic, but they're, I mean, I love that I slept well last night. (laughs) Exactly. That's perfect. And in fact, you did say um, in your Thrive Questionnaire that you, that writing notes of gratitude always strengthens you. It always strengthens, strengthens me. And I, I'm, um, I have a gratitude book and we gave away gratitude books at our wedding. Um, Somebody introduced someone at Google, a friend of mine, introduced this idea of a gratitude book, and I thought this is really cool. It uh, that where you you're where you become just more conscious of all of it. So, when you once talked about how the LA riots in 1992 forced you to take responsibility to employ your power of one, yeah. So, what is this power of one? Well, the power. I mean, well, first of all, what you're referring to was. Um, the L.A. riots that was ignited by the L.A. Police Department that was uh, and, and in command at that time was Daryl Gates, who was the police chief and actually was one of the creators of of uh, of SWAT. Um, this was all the Rodney King uh, uh, event that sort of flared up. But but the point is, is that the city of Los Angeles was cooperating with kind of a police state. And when things are very, very, very gradual, you sometimes don't notice oppression and you don't notice um, the unfairness or inequity that's going on. You don't, you choose to not notice. You don't notice, you become inoculated by your own lives. You, um, and you just either don't notice or it's harder to notice or you choose not to notice. So when the LA riots happened, I lived at this house that I now energetically got out of that. um, And I saw that I was on my, you know, on this very big house. I was on the grass looking at this riot going on, you know, 2000 buildings on fire. But I'm really only like eight or nine miles away. And so was Steven Spielberg. And so were a lot of people only eight or nine miles away. And I thought, wow, we are people that really, we go to we put up we we spend money on benefits and events and things. It would have been great if we would have just woke up and thought to ourselves, or I would have woke up and said, "This city is not operating right. It's unfair. You know, it's not fair. There's an there's an oppressed situation going on." Uh, and long before that moment of the L.A. riots, it was going on for years. Why don't we just think about stuff like that and stop it before it happens? So here's what we're going to end with. Okay. We are going to end with um, an eye contact lightning round. Oh, my God. You were so prepared. Okay. <laughs> All right. So who was your last eye contact with? We are excluding Veronica. Okay. <laughs> my last eye contact moment was also a curiosity conversation I had yesterday at lunch with the youngest editor of Teen Vogue. Her name is Elaine, I can't, I'll botch her name, Elaine Wentworth. And uh, she brought politics, weight, and meaning to Teen Vogue and made it tremendously popular and successful. And she just quit two weeks ago. And I thought I was very, really captivated by her. 
Fantastic. We'll find out more about her. Yeah. Who is your next one going to be with? Oh, God, I don't know. I um. Who would you like it to be with? Ugh, I should be better at this. You're um, great at this. Uh, I did recently have this one that I thought was pretty great with Bo St. John, who was... A, oh, she's yes, with you. on Uber. Wait, yes. she's on Uber. I yes. thought that was fantastic, I actually. Know, they loved it. She brought you to speak at Uber. At Uber, yeah. And I got tons of emails from oh, good. Uh, Uber employees about how much they loved you. I think she's pretty striking and powerful and faith-based, and she represents a lot of really amazing things that I admire, and so I was very taken by her. So I guess I would probably try to look for... For a person, if I say next, someone that has some of those attributes, I'm very now taken by because of Bose and because of the girl I had, the girl, my wife, and also Elaine yesterday. I would like to do something beyond hopeful, but faith based. I want faith, a faith based energy living inside the fabric of the next uh, television or movie I do. Oh, I love that. Something that is uh, contemporary, contemporary, but also based on ancient wisdom. Yes. Love yeah. that. Well, I was actually, something great happened to me when I was in uh, India because we went to where Buddha had his, gave his first speech and there was a museum and the the relics that were the most relevant, the ones that really held up was one, this long, this tall pole or column with four lion heads on it and then which was kind of which was rather beautiful and striking behind it encapsulated in the same in the same um the viewing site was this um less attractive wheel so i became kind of fascinated what does this wheel mean well the wheel means the middle way and I thought, of course, the middle way, the beginner's mind and the middle way, that's what I should be refocused on again. And I came back, well, that's what I have to do. So from the book, who was your youngest uh, eye contact partner? Oh, God, this this uh, neurophysicist named uh, something Taylor, Charles, he's... He created a nuclear nuclear reactors, and he's a nuclear physicist. He's only, he's ta- but his la- Taylor is his last name. He's like twenty one years old, and Elon is knows Elon knows him, and he in fact provides batteries and nuclear energy, I think, to SpaceX and to many other very important nuclear uh, uh, energy ener- energy companies. And who was your oldest? Eye contact partner. Um, immediately, I'm thinking of Eric Kandel. Eric Kandel, I still stay for. I'm still friends with him. He won the Nobel Prize specifically. It was in medicine, but specifically in the area of memory. I think he's about 94. I just had dinner with him only a year ago in New York, and I brought Diane Sawyer, who wanted to meet him, and Graydon Carter. And let's end with who surprised you the most. Um. Who's uh, well? I, I guess I will say Edward Teller. I put a lot of time and energy into meeting Edward Teller. Edward Teller was the father of the hydrogen bomb, and when I I became most aware of him when he was hired by the Reagan administration to create this satellite dome uh, that would be that would protect the North American continent. That was it was called Star the Star Wars program that was going to protect America, and 
I put a lot of time and energy thinking he was going to be a kind, <laughs> the kindest of all, <laughs> kindest guy. And he was so uh, tough on me. He was like, <laughs> I mean, I don't want to say he was mean, but he was pretty crabby. Um, and I really had to, I, I met him. I had to go through a barrier of military personnel right right near the L.A. Uh, airport where they where they parked a private military jet and uh, I had to go through this barrier that also included uh, very close to a cavity search and everything <laughs> went downhill from there but you still maintained eye contact I still maintained eye contact <laughs> and I actually reframed this horrible event I because he like had no interest at all in the humanities and he said I, the last movie that I'd ever watched was Walt Disney's Dumbo, which was like <laughs> over 50 years ago. And so he had no interest in what I was doing for a living. And so whatever I was doing for a living had no meaning to him. And I thought, you know, and I remember Tom Hanks and Ron Howard go, how could you tolerate it? And I thought it was very interesting to have somebody meet with you that has such a different view of the world because he was kind of a technocrat. Right. And still maintain eye contact. That's the great message to, yeah. to bring home to everybody. Yeah, you still maintain eye because you can reframe the worst of situations, and I have many of them, and just think of them as, wow, what a learning tool right. this was. Right, what a teachable moment. Yeah, even the worst parties I've had where I've been trapped at a party, couldn't get out of it. I thought, this is really interesting. Brian, thank you so much for being our guest, and thank you to everyone for listening. Be sure to subscribe to the Thrive Global Podcast with iHeartRadio or in your favorite podcast app and stay tuned to thriveglobal.com and iHeartRadio for updates on new episodes, including the publication of Eye Contact. In the meantime, go to thriveglobal.com for tips to start thriving today. We are grateful to have our friends at Sleep Numbers sponsoring the Thrive Global Podcast. The sleep number bed adjusts on each side, so it is perfect for both you and your partner. Experience the sleep number bed exclusively at one of their 550 stores nationwide. Check them out at sleepnumber.com slash thrive.